In 2000, director Ridley Scott and star Russell Crowe gave the world a modern sword and sandal epic that drew critical and popular acclaim. In 2021, we return to America's most awarded distillery for another allocated bourbon. The film is Gladiator. The whiskey is Elmer T. Lee. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I am Brad G. of Seven Hills, father to a cute daughter, <laughs> husband to a beautiful wife, and I am your friend, Bob, but I'll, I'll have my revenge. In this in, podcast in this or the next? In- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Brad, the great thing about that is, you know, you're from a city named Seven Hills, and that's... A metaphor that for is... Rome. That's what they called Rome, the city on seven I'm, hills. I'm so glad you picked that up. Bob. Yeah, hell yeah, I did, man. I paid attention yeah. <laughs> in, in seminary. I, I think you paid more attention to the history of Rome than Ridley Scott did. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> hey, man, it is really good to hear your voice. Like it's uh, It's been a crazy couple weeks for us. I know we talked about this a little bit on last week's episode, but uh, for me, like I just moved to a new house. It's the first house wah, 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 wah. I know. I'm a homeowner now. It's been uh, it's been an experience already after like not even a week of living here. We found out the furnace needs replaced. Uh, we found out that uh, there was a gas leak. You know, just all the good things happening in uh, in the realm of home ownership already for me. Bro, I'm not going to lie. I, <laughs> this is actually going to be really mean. So I apologize in advance. <laughs> like we Haley and I bought the best house in the world. Like we have had zero issues and all i ever hear from all my friends who own homes is that there's like just inordinate amounts of issues that come up in home ownership and i don't know what like we did right but we got a really chill house no i'm happy for you man i as long as you recognize that you are in the very small minority of people (laughs) the rest of us are just struggling hundred percent yeah yeah my basement stays dry when it rains haven't had any furnace like it's just it's a wild place it's awesome. So, Brad, but I do feel I feel for you, man. That sucks. Yeah, it's all right, man. We're getting settled. I uh, I don't have a permanent recording space yet. I'm in the basement right now, so this it probably sounds different than most episodes will. But uh, bear with me as I try to find a new recording closet in my home. So we'll we'll see how that goes, Bob. We I need to come up there and build you something. Like we need to get you a legit recording booth. Yeah, I think we should just build a whole like wing onto the house. Yeah, yeah. It'll it'll be the it'll be like in Beauty and the Beast. Sponsored. No one enters the West Wing. Sponsored by our Patreon account. That that's right. <laughs> it'll it'll only take us like I don't know three hundred and seventy months yeah. to raise the required funds. <laughs> you know, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Well, Brad, we're here to talk about the two thousand Best Picture winner, Gladiator, a movie that I. You know what? I saw this a bunch when I was a kid, and it's always, always on cable. I feel like AMC just exists on reruns of of this and The Walking Dead and The Shawshank Redemption. Um, yeah. But I got to be honest with you, man. I can't remember the last time I sat down and watched this all in one sitting. It's been on my sh- like, you know, I own it. It's on my shelf. I got it when they were selling those. Uh, they used to do DVD two packs and it came with Braveheart. So it was a Braveheart Bro. Gladiator two pack. 
I have the exact same one. Yeah, man. It's a it's a Dude. classic of the DVD genre. But and like <laughs> I'll I, I'll just say this. Of all the two packs that have ever come out, I don't know if they've ever paired two movies more perfectly together. Yeah, like, I think for good and for bad. Like oh, I was 100%. thinking back to our Braveheart episode, and this movie just shares so much DNA with Braveheart. And uh, you know, Brad, honestly, like I think we'll get into it, but I'm not going to lie. I think watching this movie after probably 10 years of distance, it was a very, let's just say, different experience for me this time around. Can, can I just tell you that I so I haven't seen Gladiator in probably like three, four years. And <laughs> because we watched Braveheart somewhat recently and like I saw them both on the same case, I legit was waiting for Lucilla, you know, played by Connie Nielsen to come up to Commodus at some point and say, like, it's OK because I carry his baby. And then I realized at the end, I was like, wait a second. That was Braveheart. Yeah. Wrong, wrong movie. <laughs> you know, they both really lean heavily into the I miss my dead wife, but I'm also going to sleep with this other pretty lady. And I yeah. think it kind of throws the whole movie off in, in both instances. I'm, I mean, in this one, at least he doesn't sleep with her. Yeah. He, he just like kisses her once. Yeah. He's like, I'm not attracted to you at all. And then she's like, hey, make out with me. And he's like, OK, maybe a little. And <laughs> they just move on from there. Maybe a little. Uh, you know, I am a I am a gladiator now. I deserve this. You know. Oh, of a hundred percent, man. I mean, Proximo Acid. Do, do you like girls, boys? <laughs> we can send it to you. All right, man. Before we get too off the rails here, I think we should throw over to Brad explains, which is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. I am going to go ahead and assume this was not your first time seeing this, as you owned the DVD two pack. That's right. Yeah, this is probably around number 10. So like something around wow. there. I've seen it quite a few times, man. 10 times? Like, Brad, and I don't mean this in like a patronizing way at all. You're you, about to be so patronizing. You, but seriously, you watching a movie 10 times, that this has to be really high up your list of most rewatched Brad G movies. Yeah, I, I've said this before. Um, but actually let's make a contest of it. Film and Whiskey Nation, if you can name my most watched movie rewatched movie then you'll win some sort of prize because i know that at some point in the history of this podcast i've mentioned it oh i like it well okay get, uh, get at us on social media or on our discord channel with your answers to that question and brad will send you in his words some sort of prize yeah well how about uh how about the luca mariano we Ooh, we got all those yeah, yeah, i yeah, could yeah. send him a bunch of samples cool boom all right there boom, it is boom boom all right, Brad, let's get into Brad Explains. Can you break down the plot of this movie for our listeners in 60 seconds or less? I sure can, Bob. The movie Gladiator is about Russell Crowe uh, wanting to be the Spaniard guy that like farms his Spanish land with his Spanish wife and his Spanish son, um, and he doesn't get to do that. Uh, instead, he's the em the emperor's primary general. Uh, he beats the Germans, and then his son... And not not his son. The emperor's son kills the emperor and becomes the emperor, and then tries to kill Maximus. Maximus goes back home. His family's dead. He becomes a slave, becomes a gladiator, and then he becomes so good at being a gladiator that he denies the emperor's power. Uh, Commodus, the emperor, tries to fight him in one-on-one -on -one combat and like stacks the the battle in his favor. But Maximus is a badass and kills him anyways, and frees. The Roman Empire from the tyrannical reign of the emperors. 
boom. Also, he dies. Yeah, dude. I'm not going to lie, man. For all the crappy cinematography in this movie, that last scene when they're carrying Maximus's body off and you just see Lucilla standing in the middle of the arena mm. and you just see Commodus's body lying there. Mm. That's a it's dope a great shot, shot, bro. It's a great shot. Oh, yeah, I noted man. that too. You know what it reminded me of, though? Uh, the very end of West Side Story when they're carrying Ooh. off Tony's body and Ooh, you've got uh, Maria following them out of the, and they, the camera pulls back up from the park. And yeah, man, it, it reminded that, me of that quite a bit. West Side Story, that's the one where they had that song, that There's Nobody Like Maria. Is that yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> Wrong Maria. Wrong Maria. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, I want to dive right into this movie, and I can't tell what a better place to start would be. So I'm going to let you pick. And I think the two options, because we got to discuss both of them, are the script and the direction. Now, Ridley Scott is the director here. We've talked about him on the podcast before. Uh, we have, at least I have, lots of opinions about Ridley Scott, but I also have lots of opinions on the story and the script in this movie. Uh, Brad, where do you think we should start here? Dude, my boy Ridsco, he, str- <laughs> he struggles in this movie. All right, let's, yeah, let's do Ridley Scott then, because... Ridley Scott is one of the most famous directors that has been working for well over 40 years now. He has made incredibly great movies. He's most famous for Alien and Blade Runner. You know, he's been nominated for Best Director. I can't remember if he won Best Director for this film or not. Actually, I don't think he did. I think Ang Lee won for Crouching Tiger in this year. Yep. Yep. Uh, But, you know, he's a really, really famous director. And yet I feel like over the years... He has just kind of become like a very serviceable, passable director. And when you go to see a Ridley Scott movie, there's not a lot of like stylistic things that I think characterize a Ridley Scott movie. Do you know what I mean? Like you look at all the movies he's made in the last 20 years and they're kind of all over the place. They all kind of feel the same. And and I guess that's a good sign. But I also don't know that Ridley Scott has made a great movie in 40 years. And and yeah, that's where I mean, I, that's where I struggle with him. Like, is he really a great director, or is he just one of our best kind of directors for hire? And you're kind of guaranteed to get a three star movie out of him. Yeah, I mean, when you look at where he started with Alien, and then you look at something like Gladiator, which won him Best Picture somehow, and then you go to like his next uh, collaboration with Russell Crowe, which was Robin Hood, which uh, I don't know if you saw that, but it was really really bad no bueno yeah no bueno i I, like i just look at him and i think that overall i just feel like ridley scott is an average director that struck gold in his first movie i haven't seen blade runner so you know you can you can discount my opinion as you will but overall like i don't know especially like when you talk about a specific style that he has like his style is just really flat, washed out cinematography where there's not a lot of color. And that works when you are filming a sci fi alien on a, you know, derelict space cruiser type movie. But it doesn't really work when you're doing a movie like Gladiator, like Robin Hood, like all, you know, these other movies where they should be a lot brighter. There should be a lot more color. I, I I think that's one of the things that frustrates me most about this movie is that the cinematography is just average. The coloring of the movie is boring. There, there's just a lot of issues with Gladiator. And as I come out, you know, swinging, I love this movie 
for the longest time. Like, there's a reason I watched it 10 times. There's so much of this movie I really liked. And there's some of it that I still enjoy. But as I get older, I, I think it... I don't know, man. I just look at it and I go, man, in 1999, American Beauty won (laughs) Best Picture. And then you have in 2000, Gladiator winning it. And it just, I don't know. It's just a hard left turn. Yeah, it really is, man. And I think the most frustrating thing for me watching this movie, which again, is a movie that I like for the most part, is how uneven the direction is. Because there are some sequences where it really feels like He must have sat down and storyboarded this like it flows really well. He picked all his shots really well. And then there's other sequences where it just seems like they filmed the same thing from like 15 different angles and they just kind of spliced it together. And, you know, the opening battle scene, I feel like there's a pretty great kind of setup for this battle that you're going to get. And then the battle starts and it is just a mess, dude. It's like incomprehensible. I didn't know where I was. I had no sense of the geography. And I think that there are like a number of sequences like that throughout the movie. And it really just kind of seems, I mean, at least the edit that we got here, like Ridley Scott had really good ideas for like 40% of the movie. And then the other 60%, it was just kind of like, all right, like we're going to see what we get here. Yeah. Like there's a part of me that wonders if this movie could have been like an hour and 40 minutes long instead of two hours and 35 minutes. Because as I, as I get deeper into the movie, uh, the first half of the movie is is hard to get through. Uh, there's there's some good moments throughout, but I don't know. I, I think that you're you're hitting the nail on the head, Bob. There's great moments in this movie that like give you hope for a phenomenal movie, but enough of it just drags you down. That uh, I mean, it's the pacing, it's the cinematography, it's the dialogue, it's the acting. Uh, there's just I don't know. Well, yeah. I, I don't know. Where yeah. do you want to go? <laughs> well, see, maybe that's a good place to kind of transition into the script, because I feel like there are moments where this script is really good. But for the most part, it's it's not good at all. And then I also feel like there are moments where Ridley Scott's direction is really good. And then there are times where that's not good at all. And I think the most frustrating thing is that they never really seem to be working in sync together. Like when the script is is doing some OK exposition or something like it seems like Scott's direction is just wandering off in a a completely different direction for lack of a better word and then there's other times where it's like oh Ridley Scott is taking this turd of a scene that was written and he's really making something suspenseful or intriguing out of it Um, but but again like it just doesn't seem like those two really work together and they're kind of always at odds and you know you talk about the first half of this movie man I like I kind of had to watch this movie in bits and pieces, and that is never ideal for watching a movie. But again, I've seen it a ton of times, so I know what's coming. But I have to say, man, the first half of this movie is just an absolute slog. Like, I came to watch a movie called Gladiator. I want to see a man gladiate. Do you you know what I mean? Like, I just I want to see somebody in the Coliseum. And there is just this protracted, like, setup of. Roman politics and the relationship between the emperor and his son. And it just goes on forever. Like he doesn't even get sent uh, or he doesn't even wake up, you know, as a slave until I think like the 45 minute mark, he doesn't actually get to the Coliseum until the hour and a half mark. And at that point, there's only an hour left in the movie. It just kind of seems like the pacing of this film is way off to me. 
See, for me, the, I, I think the the first half has different issues. I actually kind of liked the protracted prologue, if you will. I, I guess I really enjoy the setup of Maximus's character, of his relationships with Commodus and Lucilla and uh, Marcus Aurelius. Like, I, I enjoy that opening sequence because you get to see who Maximus is, what he is all about. I don't know. I, I was reading some reviews of the movie, and a lot of people complain about how he's he's just such a simple character, right? He's a great fighter that wants to go home, and that's kind of a stereotypical thing. But honestly, I like that trope. I, I like the idea of the reluctant warrior. So that that's not something that bothers me. I think for me, the first half of the movie, it's the battle sequences that struggle. And like there's a there's a few cool shots of like the arrows flying through the air and the the catapults launching these fiery, you know, boulders. But for the most part, I think the entire movie struggles with the battle sequences. The, they're they're filmed strangely. They're cut to pieces as far as like the choppiness of the editing. So for me, that that opening sequence, the opening battle sequence, and really most of the battle sequences for for the whole movie, I just think Scott really struggles as an action director for grand, large-scale warfare. Yeah, I think that's a good point, man. And one of the things I noticed this time around was that weird slow-mo effect that they put into place in a lot of the battle sequences. And not to nerd out too much, but you know, when you're recording a movie on film, the way the film goes through the camera is you get 24 film cells or frames per second. So when you play back film like on a spool in a movie theater, it's 24 frames a second. And so if you wanted to film something in slow motion, let's say you wanted to slow it down by half, you need to record that at a frame rate that's much higher. So you record that in the camera at 48 frames a second so that when it plays back at 24 frames a second, it plays in slow motion. But sometimes like when you can't afford 48 frame stock or, you know, like you just don't have the resources, you'll see like filmmakers will just go ahead and use 24 frames and then just play it back really slowly. And you can kind of tell each click of the frame. It doesn't look seamless anymore. It's not like tricking your eye into thinking that it's like a fluid movement. And they do that a lot in this movie where it's like it's in slow motion, but it's not really slow motion. It's like cheated slow motion. And it has that weird choppy kind of flicker effect to it. And it was super distracting for me. Like there was a lot of camera work. And you mentioned the cinematography. There's a lot of zooms in this movie. And I like for some reason, I just I don't get down with when cameras zoom in movies in general, but especially like <laughs> when you're showing me ancient times and there's this it, it sounds stupid to say like this, but like every time there's a zoom, you become very aware of the fact that there's like a camera in this place. And it really pulls me out of whatever world you're trying to build. So there were a few things like that that Ridley Scott and his cinematographer chose to do that just like it, it takes you out of the world of the movie. Yeah, there's multiple times where he uses the like slightly lower angle than the object's face. It's like a mid range zoom from far, like from decently far away, but you're like looking up at Marcus Aurelius or you're looking up at, I think it's Senator Gracchus at one point as he's delivering a line. And I'm just like, that's just, it just feels like a really weird decision. Like, like, do you want us to focus on them? Do you not? Like, why is the camera so far away, but you're slowly zooming in from a weird mm -hmm. angle? Like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to focus on. And I think the other thing that frustrates me about that is I feel like half the time, like when they're zooming in on something, the object they want you to pay attention to isn't like 
clear of other objects or people. And so you end up seeing like close-ups of just random extras faces as they're like <laughs> looking around right in front of Marcus Aurelius. And you're like, what? what? Come on, bro. Like, like get these extras out of here, man. <laughs> I will say I did notice a couple times, like some of the choices stylistically that they did make, I think really got borrowed from, and they got borrowed from pretty heavily by Peter Jackson for the Lord of the Rings. Like uh, all of the sequences where Russell Crowe is like astral planing, <laughs> or like astral projecting yeah. and, and thinking yep, about yep. his dead family. That is like a hundred percent the kind of frame rate, the kind of color grading, the kind of weird, you know, uh, fl- whip pans and zooms that Peter Jackson does whenever Frodo puts the ring on and they show, you know, whatever Frodo is seeing in Mordor. And, and I, so I, you know, to their credit, there is some stuff in this movie that I think was really influential on filmmaking in the early 2000s. But there is a lot of nitpicking we can do here, Brad. And I guess, you know, just to kind of pull back a little bit from that nitpicking, I think we should talk about Russell Crowe. The man wins the Oscar for this movie. I don't really know why. And that's not to say he's not good, but I just, you know, we've seen a lot of great Russell Crowe performances. I don't know that I'd put this in like his top four or five performances. And yet at the same time, you know, the the credits come on and it cuts right to Maximus's face. And he is imagining himself basically walking through these wheat fields, going to see his family. And it cuts back to him and you realize he's on the battlefield and he's been daydreaming. And they just let the camera linger on his face for like, I don't know, 20 seconds. He sees a butterfly or a bird or something fly off and he watches it and and dreams about being free. And you can see all these things registering on his face of I'm daydreaming and I'm snapping back to reality, but I want to go back to the daydream. I'm thinking about this bird. And then he he resolves himself to go fight this battle. And I think from the very get go, just that little touch is a it's kind of like a microcosm for the whole movie that. This script is not very good. It doesn't flesh his character out very well. The dialogue is going to be terrible. And yet Russell Crowe is going to do the heavy lifting to make this believable. And I think he he needs to get the credit. So, like, you know, even though I don't think he deserves the Oscar necessarily, maybe he does because he took what could have been a very bland, mediocre character and he makes something out of it. I was going to say, I, I think that if there's anything I enjoy about this movie, I actually like a lot of the performances in this film. I like Russell Crowe. I like Oliver Reed as Proximo. I like uh, Connie Nielsen as Lucilla. I really like Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus. Um, I, I like the the characters who play the senators. I like the character who plays the uh, the Numidian, his his gladiatorial friend, like there's a lot of performance in this in this movie that I think pull a really average to bad script like out of the toilet and give you a movie that's that's endearing and charming and motivating. Uh, so I, I think that if there's anything that really helps this movie out, it is the acting performances. Well, let's go in on that a little bit, because I do think we should talk about Joaquin Phoenix. He earns a Best Supporting Actor nomination, I believe, for this movie, and I think he deserved it. Uh, He's really, really good in this movie. And honestly, I noticed it in that scene where he murders his father. You know, in my mind, I had thought that there were two separate scenes that he has the confrontation and then he comes back later and murders him. But it's all one scene. 
And I don't really want to focus on the murdery part of it. I want to focus on what's before that when Marcus Aurelius comes and breaks the news to Commodus that he is not going to be emperor. And you have Joaquin Phoenix just really bearing his soul and, and just saying like, Dad, why don't you love me? There are many forms of courage, devotion to my family, to you. But none of my virtues won your list. Even then, it was as if you didn't want me for your son. Oh, Commodus. You go too far. I searched the faces of the gods for ways to please you, to make you proud. And, you know, I would... It's a, it's a great line, actually, because it's like a complete window into this character's soul. I think he says, like, I would butcher the whole world if it meant that I could have your love. And yeah. it is such an insight into like, wow, this guy is a freaking sociopath. But also what's driving him is that he wants this approval. And the fact that he can't get it is the thing that's going to set him over the edge. And watching him just kind of beg and plead. And, you know, Marcus Aurelius is just already determined not to do it. It's really heartbreaking. And I think the frustrating thing for me was like, I'm watching that scene and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this guy's not as evil as I remember him being. He's really layered and I can understand his motivation. He's really upset about what he is perceiving as Maximus taking something from him and not just the the throne, but like his dad's love. And then they just kind of turn him into like this cartoonish villain in the second half and he loses all that nuance. But even even with that working against him, I think Joaquin Phoenix is just freaking phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, I I will just never forget watching this as a young teenager and just being blown away by how creepy he is in this movie. Like, I just think Joaquin Phoenix is terrifying in this film. And even watching it now as a 30-year-old, I, I think you find the nuances of his performance. Like, what, like when he's in that scene you were just talking about and he talks about the four virtues that Marcus Aurelius had written to him about and then he lists, he goes, well, I, I knew that I didn't have those, but... But father, I have other virtues like you can see that he's still trying to win his father's approval and it just isn't going to work. And so for me, as he enters the second half of the movie, I think the key to understanding him is the other great scene that I think he really has, um, which is where he's in the Senate and the Senate is like, you know, belaboring him with all these different things he needs to do. And he gives you this line about like, I will be their father and the people of Rome will be my children mm -hmm. and I will love them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the motivating piece for this character is like, okay, well, if I never got the love that I deserved, I'm going to give it to my people. I'm going to treat them the way I should have been treated, you know, which is paired with this immoral, let's start the Roman, you know, gladiatorial games back up. But at the same time, like he's like, he's almost like perversely pure of heart. Like he desires love, even if he pursues it in ungodly and forsaken type of ways. Absolutely. All right, man, I think we're off to a good start here. There's lots to like with this movie, but there's definitely some flaws here. Uh, let's see what we think about the whiskey for the day, which is Elmer T. Lee. What do you say? Let's get to it.
All right, so today we are checking out Elmer T. Lee Single Barrel Bourbon. This comes from Brad's favorite distillery, Buffalo Trace, and just like most Buffalo Trace products, it is nigh impossible to find. And uh, Brad, there's not too much to say here because we have said it all about Buffalo Trace, but just in terms of the specifics, this is only a 90 proof bourbon. It is from mash bill number two, which is a higher rye bourbon. They think it's about 15 to 18% rye. It shares the mash bill that Blanton's carries, which is also a single barrel, which is also kind of in this uh, general proof point. I'm excited to try this, Brad, because I've never actually gotten a chance to sit down and try Elmer T. Lee, partially because it's really hard to find just to buy it at retail. But also, you know, when I go to a bourbon bar, I know how much it costs these bars to get a bottle. And so the markup on this stuff is insane. And honestly, if I'm going to be paying 20 plus dollars for a pour of bourbon, I'm probably going to want something that's not just a 90 proof bourbon. So I'm excited to try it. We have a sample from our friend at TK Bourbon on Instagram. He sent us a sample of this. We are very, very grateful for that. Brad, you've kind of had a checkered history with Buffalo Trace. So are you familiar with the Elmer T. Lee brand? And how are you feeling about this one going into it? God bless it, Bob. I just looked it up and it's like 100 to $300 on the secondary market. Yeah, but the retail is like 40 bucks. Yeah, yeah. but you're not. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Bob, I I don't need to get started on this. <laughs> I damn it, this is just so frustrating because I drank the whiskey already. I took all my freaking notes. It's a solid whiskey. Yeah, like like it's it's pretty good. And I, I like honestly, at thirty eight dollars, I gave it a six out of ten on value. I was like, yeah, it's a solid whiskey. Thirty eight dollars is a little expensive, but like, sure, yeah, it's fine. Uh, Bob, I came out with a thirty seven out of fifty. Like, that's a really solid score for a whiskey. And then I have to freaking find out that it's a Buffalo Trace bullshit that you can't even got, get it anywhere. And people are dropping $100, $200, $300 for this crap. And it's not worth it. Listen, man, I, I love that you are so worked up that you just skipped the whole whiskey segment. Already gave your final score. So I'm going to play catch up with you now because I think I'm the only one reviewing this whiskey at this point. But yes, I share your frustration. It is incredibly, incredibly aggravating to see what's happening with the secondary market. And Buffalo Trace, you know, to their credit, like they they don't have 100% say in how their whiskey is sold. The three tier system is really, really crappy. But Brad, let's just talk about what's in our glasses here. When I poured this out and I nosed it, I thought this was just really, really beautiful. This is an incredibly, I mean, it sounds simplistic to say nice, but this is just a really nice nose. There's a lot of apple on this. And specifically for me, it was green apple. I get a lot of caramel on this. You know, obviously it's a bourbon. You're going to get caramel on it. Um, and then I got like a little hint of like a cherry candy, maybe like a red vines or Twizzlers on this. It was really, really nice and pleasant and lighter than some of the Buffalo Trace products we've had in the past. It certainly was a little bit brighter and lighter than Blanton's and even Eagle Rare. I'm going to give this an eight out of 10 on the nose. <sighs> Come on. All right. All you, right. I'm you in. can do it. So for the nose, I, I think it has a really nice, bright kind of vanilla note to it that like popped out to me at the start. And then underneath that was, I'm right there with you, Bob. It had this nice, crisp, refreshing apple nose to it that was just pleasant. I I, I didn't expect it from this bourbon. Um, I was honestly expecting more caramel. I, I really just kind of got a hint of it. 
Um, but yeah, nice, uh, lots of vanilla, lots of apple. Um, I give it a seven and a half out of 10 on the nose. And then when you get to the palate, the mouth feels a little bit thin, but again, it's 90 proof. So I wasn't expecting a lot here. Uh, thin, but really nice again. And I, gosh, I keep, I hate that I keep saying the word nice, but this is just like, it's not even just inoffensive. It's just a very pleasant little whiskey. And I enjoyed the heck out of it. And, you know, so for me, again, the apple carries over. There's lots of cinnamon on this one. I get a little bit of clove on the taste right before you go to swallow. I think it does turn just a bit bitter and it gets very oaky. And it reminded me a lot of Eagle Rare in that way. Uh, So, you know, compared to our notes from Eagle Rare, I still think overall uh, the palate on this is really, really, I'm going to say nice again, but (laughs) it's a really enjoyable experience. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the palate. You, you've been down to like Amish country and had been to like the barn or Dare Dutchman or something like that, right? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, like their peanut, their creamy, like peanut butter spread. Yes, I do. That is what I got on this whiskey. Oh, interesting. Okay. Like it was creamy. It was peanut buttery. There was a ton of vanilla and a, a little bit of that crisp apple came on through. And I, I think honestly what you said, I, I didn't write it down, but cinnamon is a good note that like, it's almost like a cinnamon, peanut butter, vanilla. I really liked this. It, it, it didn't blow me out of the water, but I thought it was a really solid, complex uh, palette that I gave an eight out of 10 to. All right. So let's move to the finish here. I think the finish is actually a little bit nicer than the palette, because like I said, it goes a little bit bitter and and heavily oaked on the end of the finish or on the end of the palette. But for the finish, I actually think that some of those sweeter notes came back. It was a really nice and mouth. Man, I've said nice 18 times. It was a really mouth watering finish. It didn't dry my mouth out. It wasn't tannic at all. And I really appreciate that on a whiskey like this. I'm going to give it once again, a seven and a half out of 10. Yeah. Once again, this, this is a finish that is smooth and sweet. Like there, there's a little bit of oakiness, a little bit of spice, but I'm getting all that vanilla. For me, the apple kind of come becomes more pronounced at the end of this experience. And there's a nice little Kentucky hug to go along with it. I, I like the finish. It's an eight out of 10 for me. All right. That takes us to overall balance. Brad, I think this is a really well-balanced whiskey. Um, there's not much to say here. In terms of negatives, I think it does drop off a little bit from the nose to the palate. But then again, from the palate to the finish, it goes back up again for a 90 proof bourbon um, to not pack a lot of a punch and to really stay in that fruit forward, sweet vanilla caramel wheelhouse. I think they really knocked this one out of the park. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the overall balance. Yeah, Bob, I can't really add to to what you said there. It's it's a well-balanced whiskey and it had some surprising complexity from the nose to the fl- to the palate. So for me it's a 7.5 out of 10, really well-balanced whiskey. All right, so this is where it gets, you know, Buffalo Tracy because uh we're talking about the value here, Brad. It retails for what? 40 something dollars. What does it retail for? Uh, $37.99. All right. So let's round it up to $40. let us just say you're paying $40 retail. It doesn't sell for that, you know, anywhere. You're going to be spending at least $100 to get this unless you are lucky enough to live in a state like Ohio. And even then you're going to have to enter a lottery for the chance to buy it at retail, which is ridiculous in its own right. So, Brad, this is the hard part. I think scoring this out at $40 makes it comparable to Eagle Rare. And 
Eagle Rare was one of the bourbons that made me fall in love with bourbon. But when we tried it about a year ago, I think we realized like in a lot of ways we have encountered many, many more and better bourbons. And I actually think head to head, I might prefer this flavor profile to Eagle Rare. So if I could get it for 40, I'm going to give this like an eight, eight and a half out of 10 on value. If we're talking a hundred dollars, I don't see this being a hundred dollar whiskey at all. And that makes it a really bad value. If I'm going to split the difference, oh, Brad, I guess I'm just going to give it a four out of 10 on value. All right. So my original score for this was six out of 10 at $38. I, I think it's just a little overpriced. If it was like, th- if it was Eagle Rare range and like 30 to $33, probably be like a seven or eight out of 10 on value. But at a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars $300, this has never been done before in the history of Film Whiskey Podcast, I'm going to give it a negative six on value. (laughs) Uh, And that brings my final score out to a 25 out of 50, Bob. Oh, man. A negative. (laughs) That's a 12-point swing. We we went from a 37 out of 50 to a 25 out of 50. Are Are you really for real sticking with that number? You know, I, I'm going to cut the difference and give it a zero. All right, cool. So that brings you out to what? Uh, 31 out of 50. All right. I'm at a 35 out of 50. So that's bringing us to a 33 on average or a 66 out of 100. Again, like if we were just taking into consideration the, the taste and the drinking experience, this is a much better bourbon than a 66. But when you va- when you factor value into it, I think this is pretty appropriately rated. Yeah, honestly, I I know that I'm harsh. It's honestly a solid whiskey. I understand why people want it. I understand why the price goes up on the secondary market. I just think that Buffalo Trace needs to do more to keep the secondary market under control, whether that's increasing production, whether that's, uh, I, I, I don't know, putting limits on how much it can be sold for. Otherwise, they stop selling to those, uh, you know, third party sellers like I don't know what it'll take, but they need to get a handle on this because I, I think the beauty of whiskey is that it's an everyman drink. Like, like when I think about the world of whiskey, it's a place where anybody can come and join. And what Buffalo Trace is doing is they're creating a snooty, select, secondary market where you're better than somebody else if you get your hands on a bottle of their stuff. And I just don't think that that's right. I, I think that they need to do something about it. So revolt. There you go. Revolt. That's right. We're, you are the Maximus see, of this this coup that we're about to throw against Buffalo right Trace. You're damn right I am. And I think it needs to start with the Film and Whiskey podcast. Stop supporting their stupid whiskeys, but you keep putting them on here, Bob. So you, yep. you are the uh, Quintus. Yeah. You are the oh, Quintus, Quintus to my, to right. my Maximus. All right, whatever, man. <laughs> Brad, Brad, let's get back into talking about Gladiator. What do you say? <laughs> let's get to it, Bob.
All right, that was Elmer T. Lee Bourbon, a whiskey that we both really like, but I don't know if we would recommend it, Brad, just because of the chase involved in getting a bottle. And that's exactly how we feel about Gladiator. So uh, we'll see you next week. (laughs) See you guys. (laughs) Brad, I'm going to call an audible here. Most weeks you invent a Brad G award to give out to our movie of the week. This week, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give the Bob Book Award this week. Do it. And it's kind of dark. Are you ready for it? Whoa, I love Dark Bob. (laughs) It's from the worst timeline. (laughs) This movie gets the award for best child-sized mannequin getting absolutely yeeted by a horse. (laughs) Listen, man, first of all, I got to say, for a movie that I like, this movie has just so much unintentional comedy, especially in that first half. Like moments that I laughed out loud where it was completely inappropriate to do so, but none more than when Russell Crowe's little son is running towards that, you know, that uh, platoon and saying like, ah, papa, <laughs> and it just cuts right to the horse going, Poosh! then this kid just <laughs> flying out from under the feet of this horse. It was the <laughs> fakest looking. And then, but they made a little sound effect. Like if I can find the scene, I'm going to put the sound effect of this kid getting just, just trucked by this horse in here. Cause it, <laughs> it was so funny to me. Tell me if I'm oh. the worst person ever, or if that actually was just a terrible idea on their part. No, as long as you add like a crowd ooing in the back, like, oh, <laughs> afterwards, then I think it's a perfect sound clip. Did you ever get into <laughs> Vine when Vine was a thing? No, I honestly didn't. I, I thought it was like old TikTok. Is that what it was called? Pretty much. Yeah. I never got into it, but I've been watching all of those like v- good Vine compilations on YouTube lately. And there's this one where uh, it's like an infomercial. I think it's Alyssa Milano or something. And she's doing you know, one of those inform- infomercials for underprivileged kids. And it starts with her saying, what would you do if there was a child standing right in front of you? And then it cuts off and it cuts to somebody else, like a home video of somebody just trucking a kid out of their way. <laughs> and it just reminded me, like, I need to make the mashup of her saying, what would you do if there was a child and then cut to gladiator and this kid just <laughs> yes. getting by this yes. horse yeah that'll be the first uh video on the film and whiskey tiktok <laughs> absolutely and it'll get us banned <laughs> no. forever <laughs> no bob honestly the other moment uh that i will point out of bad mannequinology whatever you want to call it when <laughs> so you remember he doesn't have almost any lines other than the gods favor you because their color is red uh, the, the, the guy who like challenges him when he yeah. first gets to the training school, the big, but then he, he kind of becomes his friend. The early two thousands, Dave Batista guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. He yeah. looks like Drax, but you know, a discount version. Yeah. Discount Drax. <laughs> so when discount Drax dies, when they're like, le- when the gladiators are helping Russell escape, mm-hmm. that is the single worst, most fake looking deaths. I think I have ever seen in a movie. Like, I don't think Velocipaster could have a worse death. You know, that that, that whole last sequence of them trying to do this escape and the whole coup attempt. Honestly, Brad, I'm not going to lie. I forgot that was part of the movie. I remembered how it was going to end. I knew it was building to that, but I totally forgot there was this attempted escape from the prison and it felt so weird and tacked on and not filmed very well. Like, I couldn't really understand Why is Russell Crowe like down in the catacombs now? Where is he going? And especially with that guy's death, 
whom we're calling uh, Discount Drax, apparently, when when he gets <laughs> killed, I really think it was one of those things where they were like, oh, shoot, like we forgot to show him die. And he's not in the movie anymore. We got to go back and film that again. Yeah. And because he's filmed in silhouette and it's just kind of out of nowhere. Like you don't even know it's him at first. And then you just see this this body get hit with like three or four arrows. And then they kind of cut to a close up and you can tell it's him and then he's dead. But he goes out so unceremoniously for a guy who you thought was kind of important to the movie. Like they it really just felt like a like a disrespectful way to kill him off. Oh, dude, it it, it just felt so herky jerky and weird. I, I just yeah, that was the death that just just kind of killed me a little bit on the inside. But I will say that the way that they filmed the nets closing in like the traps being uh foisted upon maximus and his allies i actually really got into that hmm. like for me that set up that final battle in such a way where like it makes you feel like commodus has already won like by the time he's giving the speech to his sister about how like if she tries to be noble oh, man, and that kill herself Oh, dude, it's so good. And it's in the middle of like all of Maximus's allies being decimated or mm -hmm. captured. But the Emperor Claudius knew that they're up to something. He knew they were busy little bees. And one night he sat down with one of them. And he looked at her. And he said, tell me what you've been doing. Busy little bee. Or I shall strike down those dearest to you. You shall watch as I bathe in their blood. And the Emperor was heartbroken. The little bee had wounded him more deeply than anyone else could ever have done. Uh, for me, that scene is one of the most memorable from the movie. Yeah, that like, might have been like, the guess... best overall sequence because they you're right. They they really expertly intercut it with what's going on at the prison. And and I think that's one of the things with this movie that like the first hour and a half, I absolutely hated the last hour. Ridley Scott's like, hey, watch me go to work now. Like, I'm I'm going to do the thing. And he does like it. It becomes suspenseful. I think the choreography of the action sequences gets a lot better for the most part. The direction and the editing are much tighter. So the movie really ends on a good note. And I think that it kind of makes you forget about how long it took to get there. Yep. But for me, like, man, I don't want to jump right into final scores here. And I don't think I will yet, Brad. But I think that's the central thing I'm struggling with as we get closer to giving this a final score. It's just a really uneven movie. Yeah. I, I mean, let, let's just go to the action sequences as an example of that. Because for me, something that has stood out to me as I've learned more about film is something that friend of show Patrick H. Willems once said, which is that in, in an action sequence, one of the most important things a director can do is set the geography of the fight, right? That everybody knows the boundaries. Everybody knows where the antagonists and protagonists are at at every moment. And I think that when you take that lens and you apply it to Gladiator, 90% of the combat in this movie is jarring. It's 57 cuts per four seconds. It, you never know where you're at. You never know where Maximus is in relation to his people. 
Like, it's just such a cluster of a battle sequence every single time, except for the final battle. Like, when Maximus and Commodus are fighting, he does such a better job of keeping you aware of where they're at at all times. You don't have to keep track of, like, 87 different gladiators fighting one another. You just have to focus on Maximus and his dark armor and Commodus and his amazing, probably the best costume of the movie, his all white, like armor set piece. Like it's, it's a beautiful action sequence. And like, even the, the way that Commodus dies, I legitimately had chills as he's like, helplessly beating against Maximus with his free arm. Mm-hmm. I I genuinely think that Commodus's death is one of my favorite deaths in movie history. Yeah. Like, listen, I agree with everything you're saying. Like it ends on such a great note. It's just that I don't think they maintain it throughout the whole movie. And before we get to final scores, Brad, are there any other like nitpicks that you have with the movie or just things that made you kind of chuckle to yourself? Things that stood out as, maybe they could have done that a little bit better dude the the up and down nature of the dialogue in this movie like some of the lines and some of the the interactions i think are just out of this world good like I, like there are certain parts of this movie where the the dialogue i think anytime russell crowe speaks with his numidian friend is is spectacular. I, I just love the interactions that they have. But in spite of that, there are just some eye-rollingly bad lines in this movie mm-hmm. that it, it doesn't matter how much great acting you have from the people in this movie, there's just some bad writing for this film, Bob. Like, uh, like for example, when they're fighting their one battle where... Uh, Maximus's people are portraying the ancient Carth- uh, the ancient Carthage... When when Joaquin Phoenix says to the senator, he goes, now refresh my memory. I, I believe it was the barbarians who were supposed to lose here. Like, I just love the dripping sarcasm in that line. Like, to me, that's like a peak line of this movie. Mm-hmm. But then whenever I, I hate to say it, but other than their maybe their first interaction uh, between Lucilla and Maximus, every interaction that they have after that is just boring. Yeah. Like it, the lines are horrifically bad. Their dialogue is not engaging in any way. You, you, you can't tell if they're trying to make them into a love story or if they're just like kind of casually staring at each other. I I don't know, man. So, Brad, I'm going to I'm going to throw a hot take out there. Hans Zimmer did the score for this movie, and it is one of the best selling movie soundtracks of all time. This movie was a, a cultural phenomenon, like it made a whole boatload of money, apparently sold a whole bunch of CDs back in the day, too. I got to say, man, I don't think that the music matches the action on screen very well in this movie. Like it's it's a cool soundtrack, and I think a lot of the music is good. Um, but I, I noticed it in the first five minutes or so of the movie where they're playing what sounds like a Pirates of the Caribbean type uh, uh, theme over the battle with the barbarians. And it's supposed to be like this really brooding kind of, you know, the, the color palette's all grayed out and it looks like the opening scene of The Revenant or something. And the music is just this kind of old swashbuckling type thing. And at multiple points in this movie, I was just like, what's going on with the score here? Because it either seemed like it was 
in a in a completely different movie or it was so on the nose that it made me kind of roll my eyes like when Russell Crowe wakes up on that wagon and they're taking him to become a slave and they kind of cut to the marketplace I'll be damned if that wasn't just lifted from Aladdin like that was that was the Agrabah theme from Aladdin. I'm 100% certain of it. I was like, "What is the genie going to burst out here? Or are we going to start singing Prince Ali? Like, it was egregiously bad. And the scene where, like, uh, Russell Crowe's family dies. I think this movie, like, started the trope that we got all through the 2000s of uh, any time a movie is set overseas and something dramatic happens, you have to have a female singing like vaguely Middle Eastern lyrics in what sounds kind of like a yodel. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, that, like throughout the whole sequence. And yep. it just, none of it matched what was going on on the screen. See, he, here's, I have two thoughts on that. First thought, Hans Zimmer also composed Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. Oh, did he really? Okay. So there's a reason that's that opening <laughs> battle DNA. scene. Yeah. Literally, it is a hundred percent the uh dun 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 like it's it's a hundred percent Pirates of the Caribbean. And Hans just like took that one little motif and turned it into the entire motif for the Pirates of the Caribbean universe. Where it works much better. Much, much better. So that's that's my first thought. Second thought. I actually think that if you take any of the orchestral music in this movie, it's not great. It doesn't fit the movie. I agree with you 100%. Anytime they have a choir for the soundtrack, I think it fits perfectly and it it hits the nail on the head. So for me, I, I agree with you that it becomes a trope. But anytime anyone physically sings in this movie, I think it actually fits the movie perfectly. All right, Brad, last thing I want to talk about before we get to final scores, I sent you a like a short video to watch because there's something that happens in this movie that it happens kind of a lot and it's kind of egregious, but it's the use of a thing called insert shots. And if you're familiar with the film language, you might know what an insert shot is, but imagine that you are, well, imagine that you're watching this movie, right? And Russell Crowe is being taken out to get executed in the forest and he is fighting these guys and he gets slashed by one of them. He falls to the ground after he kills him. And Russell Crowe reaches behind his breastplate. And when he pulls out his fingers, it cuts to a shot of his fingers covered in blood. That's an insert shot. It's a shot that doesn't really go with the rest of the scene, but it is inserted to give us information that we might not see otherwise. It happens a lot when people are framed in close up because there might be things happening outside the frame of their face that you need to see. And so... They'll show a character opening a letter, you know, when when Rick in Casablanca stands on the train platform, he's reading a letter from Ilsa. They show the letter and everything it says. That's an insert. I think this movie relies on the insert shot in ways that make me question sometimes, like how well did Ridley Scott plan out this movie? Because there are so, so many of them. And in a way that almost makes it seem like he doesn't trust us to just understand what's going on. Like if Russell Crowe reaches behind his breastplate and pulls out his fingers and you see him kind of like wiping what looks like a bloody substance on his fingers, even if you don't see, you know, <laughs> his fingers in close up, you understand that he got hurt. 
And yeah, this, I mean, but, he he like grimaces in pain. You're yes. like, oh, okay, dude got hurt. I got it. You don't need to give me any more information than that. And this movie has, I mean, it uses insert shots as transitions between scenes. Like when he escapes from those guys and he goes riding on his horse day and night and he's they show him riding at day and then they cut to a shot of the moon and it just lingers on the moon for like five seconds and then they show him by a campfire and it's dark behind him. So it's like, well, we showed the moon so that you know that it's nighttime now. It's like, I didn't need that. I know it's nighttime. He has a fire and it's dark outside. Like, stop insulting my intelligence. And I really think this movie over relies on those little moments because they didn't really do a good enough job framing the shots otherwise. Well, I I think the big issue is that he uses such a static camera throughout the entire movie. Like, like he I don't know if he ever moves the camera. And so uh, for me the insert shots are there because he needs somewhere to go with the camera. Hmm. And so it, it, it's, it is a struggle. It's not something I noticed a ton. And even after you sent me the video, I was like, Oh yeah, I can think of a few like awkward insert shots throughout the movie, but it, it wasn't something that dominated for me. I, I think for me, it was the inconsistent, I don't know, style of the movie. Like you get a few shots of Russell Crowe, like, CGI'd over the ground, like moving uh, over the ground when he's dead. You get some random, like massive shots of of the sky and like lightning. And I think that I'm watching uh, uh, Tree of Life for a second. <laughs> like, like there's just so many different styles of of cinematography and art direction happening in this movie that that's the thing that really frustrated me about the cinematography. All right, Brad, I think that we've nitpicked enough. And again, this is like one of those episodes where I hope we kept it entertaining. I hope we don't seem like we're just kind of pooping on the movie here, but we both liked this movie. I have a feeling you might have liked it more than I did, but let's find out, Brad, what would you give this as a final score out of 10? You know, coming into it, I was expecting to give it a nine out of 10. It's a movie I've always loved. I knew that there was flaws. I I knew that there was stuff about it. I, you know, it's not a perfect movie. Um, but this time through, there's just there's just a lot of stuff I realized wasn't well made. But for me, I I don't know. There's something about this story about there. There's a heart to this movie that I think is what captured you know an entire generation of moviegoers. And, and there's a reason it won Best Picture. There's a reason it what it made so much money. I just think there's something special about this movie. And despite all of its flaws, I'm still going to give it an eight out of 10. So Roger Ebert gave this movie two out of four stars and Roger Ebert for being a really well-educated and understanding cinema studies at a level that most people will never understand. He always seemed to relate to the everyman. Like people watched Roger Ebert on TV. And if he gave a movie two stars, it wasn't like, oh, he's just pretentious and a snob. And I read his review today and I agreed with a lot of it. I watched this movie and it does remind me of Braveheart in so many ways because almost all of the nitpicks we had with Braveheart, we have with Gladiator. It's kind of a jumbled mess sometimes. It has pacing issues. The script is not very good. Uh, And yet the acting is really good. I think some of the battle scenes are spectacular. There are lots of memorable moments. I just think that this movie is still kind of like overvalued and over appreciated by people on IMDb. It has an 8.5 out of 10. It's the number 45, I think, movie of all time. Like, I just I don't see it, Brad. It's a really a really enjoyable 
two and a half hour movie that could have been two hours. Uh, I'm going to give it a seven out of 10. But I think what I would like to hear from Film and Whiskey Nation is what exactly about this movie, if you love it, it keeps you coming back to it because, you know, I look at other sword and sandals type epics like a Spartacus or, you know, even just things set in the desert, like a Lawrence of Arabia, things on a massive scale. And I just don't think this movie really compares, Brad. And so I'd like to hear from Film and Whiskey Nation. If you love this movie, reach out, let us know why you love it, what keeps you coming back to it. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Your voice can be heard on the Film & Whiskey podcast. You can do that on our website, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Next week, we are going to be watching Quentin Tarantino's 1992 debut film, Reservoir Dogs. So join us for that one. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>